Hi, I'm Danielle Gibson, and you're listening to The Confrontationalist. This podcast is for anyone who has ever said you're bad or scared of confrontation. And from my experience, this includes almost all of you. So I'm glad you're here. By listening to the show, you'll find yourself feeling much more comfortable saying what you mean so you can get what you want. Let's get started. Hi, and welcome to the Confrontationalist Podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking about the fear of public speaking. I thought about this as a topic the other day after I had a consultation with someone who was incredibly scared of speaking in public. Her job required that she make at least one presentation a month, and she contacted me because she was so exhausted from being so scared every time she had to prepare and then do her presentations. And of course, she wanted to get rid of that fear. I'm sure most of you have heard that the number one fear people have is the fear of public speaking. And in second place is the fear of death. So this means that the vast majority of people would rather die than have to speak in public. If you have ever heard this statistic, have you ever thought that it was strange or odd or extreme? Or if you've thought this yourself, have you ever wondered why? I get a lot of clients who need help with speaking in front of of groups of people. It could be presentations or actual talks or speeches. They're clients who are either currently required to make presentations or know that they're going to have to start doing them in the future. And what's interesting about the latter is that if they hire me and they're not doing any speaking yet, that they're scared even before they have the experience. So it's just the idea that scares them. So what could be the reason that this is the worst fear people have, especially for those of you who've never done it before? In this episode, I'm going to talk about some reasons this fear is so big, and then I'll talk about how much of a toll it takes on you, how the fears don't only exist with regard to public speaking, and some things you can try to do that could help alleviate your anxiety. Okay, so what's causing this fear? One major cause is shame. For those of you who don't know what shame is, it's one's belief that they are inherently bad. You often hear shame and guilt together. And to put it simply, shame is I am bad and guilt is I did something bad. Shame is a complex emotion that can be caused by a number of different factors. And the following are some. First being trauma and abuse in early childhood experiences. Things like physical, emotional, or sexual abuse can result in deep-seated shame. Childhood experiences like harsh discipline, neglect, or emotional abuse, especially those involving caregivers, parents, or some teachers, can also result in feelings of shame. Now, for those of you who are into personal development, you read books, you follow people online, Um, you're in therapy, you're working with a coach. I'm sure the word trauma comes up a lot for you. And I don't know when it started to happen, but it's really a good thing that trauma is being spoken about because most people up until, I don't know when, but most people think that trauma is only what I call big T trauma, which 
is a reaction to deeply disturbing, life-threatening events or situations. So when we think of things like that in big T trauma, we usually think of sexual abuse, loss of a parent, violent crimes, a serious car accident, war. Those are all very big events. But there's this thing called little t trauma. I mean, I don't even know if this is a term in uh, in the personal development world, but people say it. So little t trauma can be things like physical or emotional abandonment. So it could be a parent leaves or a parent isn't there emotionally, divorce, bullying, or even the loss of a pet. And people often have a tendency to rationalize the small T trauma experiences as common, and therefore they may shame themselves for any reaction that could be seen as an overreaction or being dramatic. And if you think you're overreacting and diminish your feelings, that can result in shame. So when I was in third grade, I had a teacher named Mrs. Byrne, who was really tall and really thin, and she told us she was a witch, which now that I'm thinking about it is so messed up. And she told us she would prove it to us by taking her teeth out at the end of the year. Of course, we were so young, we didn't even understand. We didn't know about dentures. And, but, okay, but this very, this woman told these eight-year-old children that she was a witch and she would prove it to us. And my question now is why, what, what, why would you do that? Why would you do that to kids? Anyway, she did. And, and at the end of the year, she took her teeth out. And I think it was pretty, very, very, very small tea trauma. But there were two things that she did, one of which had to have been very traumatizing. And the other was at the very least totally inappropriate. The first was when someone acted out in class, she would make a baby bonnet out of crepe paper and make that person who did something, quote, bad, wear it and sit in the corner facing the wall. And there was this one little boy who was the recipient of this terrible treatment more than the rest of the class. But in hindsight, he was this eight-year-old boy who just couldn't sit still he probably just had a lot of energy and sitting still was too hard. Today, it would probably be called ADHD. So he was being punished for having too much energy, in essence. And the second thing, which is also crazy, was when someone had written the word fuck on the wall in the coat room. So she had all of us write the word fuck on a piece of paper so she could match the handwriting. Because no one came forward, of course. I wasn't the one who did it, but I do remember being scared. I remember thinking, what if my handwriting looks like the handwriting that someone has who did it? So that's not a, that's not a, a stress that an eight year old should be having, but they were two things that happened. The first example was something that happened continuously throughout the year and had to have been humiliating. And the other one was just a one-off, although I'm sure there had to be a lot of one-offs since she was crazy. So those were early childhood experiences that clearly had a profound impact given that I have a very strong memory of that year of my life. 
at eight years old. And then we have societal expectations and norms. Shame can arise from not meeting societal or cultural expectations, norms, or standards. People who may feel ashamed when they believe they're deviating from what is considered acceptable behavior or appearance. So another example I have, a personal example, is when I moved to Italy for a few years after graduation from college, I had spent a semester there while I was in college and I loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved learning Italian. It was beautiful. I felt a very strong connection to it. And when I left, it kind of felt like a breakup. And then I did my senior year. I got a job afterwards and I worked for about a year and a half. And then I, I really wanted to go back because I loved it so much. And I knew that I would regret not doing it. And I could because I had saved money so I could afford to do it. And I did it. And I'm really happy that I did it. But my mother, who was a very conventional person, hated the idea because I wasn't doing the quote right thing by continuing to work in an office job. I didn't care enough about what she thought to make me not go. But I can't imagine that being told that I was running away from reality sat well with me. So I can't imagine that I didn't feel somewhat shameful about doing something I wanted to do. And this story covers a third example that can cause shame, which is criticism and judgment. Harsh criticism, harsh criticism, judgment, or negative feedback from others, including family, peers, or authority figures, can lead to feelings of shame. When people feel judged or rejected, they may internalize these negative opinions and experience shame. Some other causes include comparing yourself to others, which can be especially true in a culture that emphasizes competition and success, however you define success. A big trigger for comparing yourself to others is social media, which has contributed greatly to a sort of comparison culture. Social media and the constant comparison to curated, idealized images of others can exacerbate feelings of inadequacy and shame for some people. So one thing that, that is really important to know about this as well is that a lot of people are not honest online. They curate their life. So they make their life look better than it is. And you know, I remember at the very beginning when I first was on Facebook, which I don't like and don't go on anymore, but I just remember seeing a few people who would wish their spouse a happy birthday or a happy anniversary. And they would, they would say something like, to my dear whoever, happy birthday. You make my life better each day that you know, I'm just making this up, but every day is better than the day before. We have such a beautiful family. I can't believe we've been together for 20 years. I mean, everything that is being said is beautiful and something someone might write in a card for the other person to read. But it's really strange to have someone write that in a public forum when they could just tell the person in the morning, because they live in the same house, they see that person, and yet they are posting this comment to this person so that everyone can see it. 
So why would someone do that? I mean, there are a lot of reasons. One is validation. They want some, I mean, people comment, oh my God, I love you guys. It's so great. I can't believe you've been together this long. All of that stuff, all of it comes with that. And you're so lucky. And if that's the goal, then, then there you go. It's successful. However, my feeling is, is when someone has to be so, I guess, hyperbolic about something, it's generally, it can be an overcompensation, but it neither, that's neither here nor there. The, the fact of the matter is, is that there's no reason in my world to write a love letter to your spouse or your dog who just died. And you need to write and tell the dog who just died that you love them and how great they were, which is something I've also read. Um, you don't need to tell them online. So there's a reason they're doing it. And it could be true. It could not be true. But there's there's an ulterior motive. Otherwise, it would just be a private thing between two people. So when you're comparing yourself to people online, so someone's prettier, has a better body, they live in a nicer house, they travel to better places, they have a better job. Maybe. The word maybe needs to follow that. And so if you're looking at social media and you're defining yourself by what you're not, because you're comparing yourself to what someone posts, which may or may not be true, that's going to make you feel bad. So maybe consider when you look at this and start to judge yourself, if you can catch yourself, that this may or may not be true. And also what someone else does or achieves has nothing to do with you. It's not a race. It's not it's, it's, everyone's different. So sorry about that. That was kind of a rant, but it's really just a, you do yourself an injustice when you compare yourself to someone online, especially since they're most likely not telling the truth. Moving on, there's violations of your personal values. So if you go against your own values or beliefs, this can cause you to feel shame and the internal conflict can lead to a sense of moral shame. So an example of that would be, first of all, we all have values. Not a lot of people think about values, but it would be great if we actually knew what our values were, because it's kind of like having an internal compass. And, you know, some values are learned and some values are kind of innate and like, for example, no one's born valuing money. That's a learned value. Anyway, so an example with me is that I was working in a corporate job. And I can't remember a lot of the specifics, but I was I was in a meeting or I was coming out of a meeting and I wanted to say something, but it was very clear that they weren't interested in hearing other people's opinions or input. I, I don't remember, but I remember wanting to say something and not, and then feeling like uncomfortable about saying something. So I didn't say it. Now, my two of my three of my top values are communication, which is what I focus on for work, authenticity, and what's the third? Com communication and authenticity and honesty. And so when I didn't say something, I wasn't communicating. I stifled myself. I wasn't being myself. I wasn't being authentic and I wasn't being honest. So it, it, this was all stuff that 
I was doing to myself inside myself. So there was a conflict and I, I felt like I died a little bit inside, which can sound a little extreme, but I really did. And that's how much is, that's how important it is for me to be who I am and, and express myself. So that's kind of an example of violating your personal values. And then there's mistakes and failures can cause a feeling of shame. I personally don't have an attachment to the word failure. I think that we, we try things, we do them, they run at their course and then they end. Nothing goes on and on and on and is, is successful over and over and over again throughout your life. Things may change. You might pivot. Um, I had a jewelry line before I was doing this and it, I, I started it right before a financial crisis. I did very well in the beginning. And then because of what was going on in society with money, it became harder because jewelry is not a necessity. So, and I wasn't a name that people recognized. So I, I did it for five and a half years and about four and a half years in, I recall thinking, this isn't going to work out anymore. Like it was just kind of, I remember feeling like it was dying a slow death. And I was fine with that because what, what was I supposed to do? Continue to fight with the work that I chose to do. That's working for yourself should be a much more pleasant experience. So I never thought of it as a failure. Um, I thought of it as something I did and it ended like everything that I do. So just putting it out there, if anyone else would like to kind of redefine or reframe failure for yourself, because it sucks feeling that way. And finally, there's perfectionism. And, you know, there are two things that, that people say to me often that I'm always surprised about because they, they say it as if it's a good thing, meaning good for them. And <clears throat> one of them is that they're a perfectionist and the other one is they're a people pleaser. And now neither of them are good for you. It's, they're just not, they don't make you feel good. They're coping mechanisms that you learn. And perfection is subjective anyway, but perfectionism can lead to chronic pain, shame, because you set impossibly high standards for yourself and then you feel shame when they fall short and they will fall, fall short. So it's something, again, if you call yourself a perfectionist in any situation, not just with public speaking, you might want to think about that too. I think the term Performance anxiety falls under or is another way to say that you have a fear of public speaking because it occurs when a person is required to perform in front of an audience or in a public setting. Several factors, some of which I just mentioned, can contribute to this. First, it's unpredictable. When you're in front of a group, you rely on feedback. Hopefully that feedback is positive, but what the feedback will be is a complete unknown until you're actually in the performance or the talk that you're giving or the work or the presentation, not knowing how things will go can trigger a sense of not being in control. So if you're someone who thinks that you can control anything anyway, you can't, but if it's something that is a strong thing for you, the need for control, this could be a big trigger for you. Fears of judgment, embarrassing oneself, the pressure to perform perfectly, a lack of confidence, or a lack of experience can cause performance anxiety. And any of these 
can also lead to physical symptoms of anxiety, things like sweating, shaking, having a heart, racing heart, palpitations, nausea, can all be triggered by the anticipation of performing in front of an audience. And these reactions, these physical reactions, can also intensify the fear. So getting back to public speaking, some of my clients have told me that they experience things like a racing heart or palpitations, sweating, clammy hands, tight jaw. And this means that their nervous system goes into a state of fight, flight, or freeze. And they can be so terrified about speaking in front of people that their body responds to even just the idea of doing it. And these types of physiological reactions indicate that they're responding as if their life is at stake. That's a big deal. It takes a huge toll on your body. And something that many people don't realize is that the fear doesn't only exist during the talk or the presentation. There is a before, during, and after. So for those of you who have this fear, it probably goes something like this for you. You're told that you're going to have to do a presentation, and right after you're told, you get nervous. The presentation could be a month away, but just knowing you have to do it makes you nervous in that moment. And anytime you think about it leading up to the day, you may get nervous every time, and you may even have some sort of physiological reaction. And then the day of, You've prepared and you know your presentation inside and out, but you're still terrified. If you've done a presentation before, you may be concerned that however you felt during the previous one will happen again. And if you haven't done one before, you don't know what to expect. So you might make up scenarios and none of them would be good. During the presentation, there is a distinct possibility that you will dissociate, meaning you're going to leave your body. You feel really self-conscious, and since you're not present, you probably aren't aware of what you're doing or what you're saying. The presentation could be perfect, but you have no idea because you're emotionally not in your body and are likely on automatic pilot and convinced everyone knows how scared you are and that you end up judging yourself because of all of that. So you're feeling like crap, and then you judge yourself for that, so you feel worse. Then after, probably right as you leave the door, the room, you start to beat the crap out of yourself because you are sure that you messed up so much so that you might get fired. You may remember one or two things and you judge them and you hate yourself for not being able to handle it. And even though it is quite possible you did a good job, this loop of will go on and on and on. I had a client who experienced these cycles and it, and had to do two or three presentations a month. And she had She had been doing a good job because they kept asking her to do them, but that didn't matter. It didn't do anything to prevent this fear. And she was always terrified and she was always exhausted and she couldn't take it any longer. Something I explained to her is that even though she thinks this kind of fear and self-criticism and self-loathing is very loud when she does a presentation, they are there at other times too. In fact, they are probably consistently on a loop. And as her homework, I suggested she set the alarm on her phone to go off five times throughout the day, once before work, three times during work, and then once after work. Each time the alarm went off, she focused on listening to whatever the evil voice, the negative self-talk in her head was telling her. Things like, you're so stupid, or why can't you just figure things out? What's wrong with you? Uh, Any variation of that. 
she became really aware that those thoughts and the fears existed all the time, even when there wasn't something terrifying looming ahead, like a presentation. And because she understood that, she couldn't attach them to the presentation as much as she had before. The more awareness she had, the more familiar she got with those feelings, the easier it was for her to take the power away from them. So she was able to put some distance between the thing that she had to do, the presentation, and how she was feeling. And since she was able to get to that place where her thoughts didn't overtake her, she was able to be more present and less fearful before, during, after the presentations. And of course, like all the work I do with my clients, it had a positive effect in other parts of her life as well. Some other things that clients have done that could work for you include things like practicing the presentation a lot. And reading it out loud is very important. Deep breathing exercises, visualization, and any other relaxation techniques that resonate with you. If you go onto Google, you can find a, a lot of videos for relaxation techniques. Obviously, there are varying degrees of fear or anxiety with regard to public speaking. I'm addressing the more severe scenarios. It's totally normal to be anxious or nervous, and you can maybe check in with yourself when you feel this way and ask yourself if you're feeling excitement or anxiety because they can feel similarly in your body. It's the thought attached to them that will be different. Overcoming your fear of public speaking and often involves building confidence, desensitizing yourself to the fear through repeated exposure and learning to manage the physical symptoms of anxiety. Professional help, like working with a coach or a therapist, can also be beneficial if nothing you've tried is working well enough. Overcoming this particular fear is so rewarding and freeing. So if any of this resonates, I hope you think about what you can do to feel better. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a great week. And I look forward to next time. Bye. Thanks so much for joining me. I'll be back soon with more insights to help you get closer to being an expert confrontationalist. If there are any topics you'd like me to talk about on the show, you can DM me through my Instagram at the underscore confrontationalist. You can message me through LinkedIn or contact me through my website, theconfrontationalist.com backslash contact. And finally, I'm sure you know at least five people who are terrified of being direct and having difficult conversations. So take a minute and think of who they are, go to your podcast app, and share this episode with them today. See you next time.